The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 14. John 14. We're making our way through this section of Scripture, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. And that's because it took place in the Upper Room, where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. It's the final conversation he had with these men before his suffering. It's the final conversation he had before his crucifixion and glorification as well. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, though, I just want to set our minds to think a little bit about the miracles of Jesus. There's probably no more interesting subject in the Bible than the miracles that Jesus performed. Think about them for a minute. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. That was kind of an entree into his relationship with Peter. He healed and cleansed lepers. Lepers were, were, had a disease that was incurable. They were assigned to colonies outside the city. They were highly contagious. He touched them and he healed them. He turned water into wine. Now, for those of you who are a little bit more inclined on the scientific level, he took a substance that was inert and turned it into something that had carbon bonds. I mean, he actually created life when he did that, turning water into wine. He caused a miraculous catch of fish. After the disciples had been fishing all night and got nothing, he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. They did, and they had too much to even pull into the boat. He healed paralytics, those who were deformed, those who had paralysis. He instantly, instantaneously healed them. He cured a man's deformed hand that was withered and came back to full use in an instant. He healed an officer's son who was on the verge of death. He healed in person. He healed from afar. He caused a storm in the middle of a raging sea to instantly cease and have perfect calm on the water. He cast out demons. He gave blind their sight. He gave the deaf their hearing back. He cured temporal diseases. He cured lifelong diseases. He cured a woman who had had a hemorrhage for her whole life. He fed thousands. In fact, on two different occasions, we get a little bit tripped up by the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, but those texts are clear to say that those were the men, not counting the women and children with them. So it's fair to say on two different occasions at least, he filled, uh, fed upwards of 20,000 people with a single meal. He restored a severed ear, put it back on a skull, and reattached it. No sutures needed. He walked on the surface of a lake. I was in Israel a few years ago. I tried to do that. It didn't work out so well. But I think among all of Jesus' miracles, there were a few that stood out even above those. He raised a widow's son from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And as we all know, he raised Lazarus from the dead. To look at the works and the miracles of Jesus are pretty remarkable. Now, with that in your mind, I want you to read with me John chapter 14, 
beginning in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, those are amazing verses when you just heard the works and the miracles of Jesus. Jesus said, what I did, you're going to do. In fact, you're going to do better and more and greater works than I just did. What in the world is going on here? Well, let's first remember the context. The disciples are in the middle of this meal, and they are at this very moment extremely vulnerable. They've been told again and again before this, during this week, uh, leading up to this night and during this night, that Jesus was going to be leaving. He was going to be handed over to the chief priest. He was going to suffer and die. He told them that one of the people in the room was going to turn him over to the authorities. He, was, he told them that he would be leaving their physical presence and not returning for the rest of their lives. They were afraid, as you and I would be. Can you imagine him saying, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to go away, and you're going to be here, and you're associated with me. They were troubled. They were trying to figure out what was going on. They were also troubled because here they were trying to fight to get first place to sit by him, knowing that Jesus just said, I'm going to be the chief target of persecution. Had to make him think twice about whether they really wanted to be on his right and left side. They were disillusioned. Is this what they've been after for three years? They've been following him for three years. They left everything home and the comforts of their own villages and walked all over Israel. Why? To come to this point and Jesus to be killed and abandon them? They were disheartened. They were faint-hearted. Boil it all down, they were deeply, deeply disturbed and troubled. Look back at chapter 14, verse 1 for a minute, which makes sense why Jesus would say to them, guys, don't let your heart be troubled. He said that because he knew their hearts were troubled. He knew they were disturbed. And in this moment, this is just a devotional insight that, that is, that's gripped me in this whole study. In this moment, Jesus has great, remarkable consideration for them, of them, and their condition, and very little regard for his own. Here is Jesus. He knows what's happening. He just told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Go turn me in. Let me be tried. Let me be crucified tomorrow morning. He knows the suffering ahead of him. He also knows that he's going to be abandoned not only by men, but beginning in the garden in just a few hours, he's going to be abandoned by God, which would ultimately, ultimately climax on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? For the first time in Trinitarian history, in a few minutes, in a few hours, he's going to pray in the garden with no response from his father. He's going to pray three times. Please, please, take this cup, take this cup. No answer. The guards would come, take him away, and for that period of time, from that night until about three the next afternoon, utterly abandoned by God and man 
while at the same time mediating God to man and man to God. Knowing all of that, he gives no regard for himself. During this last conversation, he's giving entire attention to these men to get them ready for life with him, without him. He knows he's not going to be in their presence. He wants them to be faithful. He wants them to know what's coming. He wants to instruct them, instruct them in their hearts on what it means to live life by faith and not by sight. Now think about this. We live by faith knowing one day we will live by sight. The disciples had a little bit more than that. They lived by sight and then by faith and then in heaven by sight. Jesus was going to leave their immediate presence and he was preparing them. I think it's interesting too that over and over in this passage we see that Jesus was troubled. Being troubled though is different than being afraid. He was troubled, but Jesus himself was not afraid. So he provides the disciples, he provides us critical instruction for how to live with an invisible Savior. How do we live a life of faith? And roughly one-fourth of his gospel, in his gospel, John actually records this instruction. Now, what's amazing to me in the verses that we just read, that we're going to look at this morning, these three verses before us have been abused to actually make faith something that's man-centered instead of God-centered. Seeking to do, to do miracles, requesting what we want from Jesus, looking at what we can get from Jesus, what we can do for Jesus. But that could not be farther from the true meaning of what's going on here. These verses, at first glance, look man-centered. They're far from it. They're actually God-centered in an epic way. And in these three verses, if you'll follow along closely, we're going to discover two ways faith is God-centered. Two ways faith is God-centered. That first way is in verse 12. Number one, the result of faith is to represent God. The result of faith is to represent God. Verse 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes me, literally, the Greek says, he who keeps on believing in me. It's a a tense that goes on and on. He who is believing in me in an ongoing fashion, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. You have to attach that footnote because the reason is because I go to the Father. Jesus' mission on this earth was, had been during those those three years of ministry, during his 30 plus years on the earth, to represent the Father. That was his mission, that was his ministry, that was his goal, that was his mindset, was to show the world what God the Father is like. He just said in the previous section, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To see the Son is to know the Father. Very simple in that solidarity. But these verses, uh, verses 12, 13, and 14, I I have to admit are some of the most striking words in the whole Bible. These are remarkable. Without any context, if you just read these verses, what would you think? Everything Jesus did, you're going to do greater, and you can ask him anything he wants, and he'll give them to you. Those are good. Those are life verses, are they? That's pretty, pretty impressive. Yet, they're also among the most controversial verses in the whole of Scripture. Now, I have to say that these promises that Jesus will cause the disciples and us to do greater works than him, and this promise that we can ask him anything we want and he will give us, they have suffered tremendous abuse 
at the hands of the radical arm of the charismatic movement. I attended a charismatic church when I was in high school for a few years. I must have heard these verses hundreds of times. We can do greater than Jesus. We can do the miracles Jesus did. We can ask him anything and he'll give us. What do you want? What's in your heart? What do you desire? If you have enough faith, he'll grant them to you. However, primarily, this verse is taken as a promise that believers today will have a self-fulfilling, self-aggrandizing faith. That what we do will get us what we want. What we do will give us the pride and the, the stature of what we really desire. I mean, come on, can you imagine if you could walk on the water? You'd be the hit of every party, every pool party, right? Hey, here comes Rick. Watch this. Do that water thing again. And you stand out there and then, wow. People would not typically say, wow, what a savior if I could walk on water, would they? Let's look closely at what the Lord is saying here and what he's not saying in this passage. It starts off truly, truly. Amen and amen, literally. Truthfully, truthfully. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus uses this phrase over and over in the Gospels to accent something he's saying as very important. Now, this is what's interesting to me. Why would the Son of God, God in flesh, have to actually say, what I'm telling you is the truth? Isn't everything he tells us the truth? Why would he possibly say, amen, amen, this is true, verily, verily, truly, truly, I tell you? Was he implying that other times he wasn't telling us the truth? No, no, no. He's saying this truth is especially important for you to grasp. This is the way Jesus takes a highlighter in his own words and says, make sure you pay special attention to this. Everything he says is truthful. This is just his way of turning up the volume, his way of grabbing our chins, making us have eye contact, and saying, listen up, heads up. Then it says, he who believes... Or as I said, he who keeps on believing. Don't miss the tense of these verbs. They're, they're future, by the way. He's looking to a future time. This is beyond the supper that he's having with his disciples. Now, you can imagine the range of interpretations of this passage. I mean, think about this. You will do greater works than me, Jesus said. And you can imagine the way people, ways people have interpreted and even tried to apply this over the years, when you take this passage and you combine it with the next one, which is um, the request to give uh, Jesus, giving Jesus a request of what we want, he'll grant it, you have the recipe for some seriously bad theology without context. This was nowhere pressed on me worse than a few years ago when um, it was very sad and we had an opportunity to instruct this individual later, but this individual had a best friend who died. And this guy actually sent out an email that circulated far and wide that basically said, quoting these verses, we can do greater works than Jesus. He ra Jesus raised the dead. And if we ask Jesus what we want, he'll grant it. I want my friend back. Will you please join me in asking God at his funeral to raise him from the dead? Is that really what Jesus is saying here? If it were, wouldn't that change our prayer lives? Wouldn't that change the way we did ministry? 
Wouldn't that change the focus and the goals of everything we do at Mission Road Bible Church? Let's ask some preliminary questions about what this means. And Can you even for a moment have any consideration or thought in your mind that you could do something greater than Jesus' physical miracles? I mean, could you change water into wine? I would just settle for taking sour milk and turning it back into sweet milk. Could you walk on the surface of a lake? Could you take a boy's lunch and feed 20,000 people? Could you raise a friend from the dead? Just a footnote on that. How popular would you be if you could do those things? Let me ask you this. Did Jesus make this promise? Obviously, he did. It's in the Bible. Has anyone in the history of the church done the miracles that Jesus has? Now, be careful. You might say, well, no. Well, there was a, actually a time in the book of Acts when some of these things actually happened. The dead were raised. People were, who were lame were, were healed. People walked who never walked. People who were blind saw. But it was temporary. Does any, is there any evidence that the miracles of Jesus are alive and well and working today? I have to say, in, in all... Um, do respect and honesty. I get so frustrated with these faith healers on television who do the healing in front of everybody in ways that are, are ridiculous compared to Jesus' healing. I want to see someone with no ear or an ear that's been cut off come up on stage and say, fix this, tiger. Right now, fix this. The truth is, nothing like Jesus did is happening in the world today. So what is he talking about? Well, this is a reference not just, and I say just, because the apostles did do some miracles to, to verify their association with the gospel and Jesus early in the book of Acts. But this is not just about physical miracles. Jesus is not talking primarily about physical things here. He's talking about something greater this is a reference to the ongoing ministry of the gospel, of evangelism, of discipleship in Jesus' absence. That's why the last phrase in this verse is so critical. He says, because I go to the Father. I mean, was Jesus really leaving them in charge of feeding multitudes because he was going to the Father? No. He was leaving them in charge of something way more important than that, and that is the spreading and the telling and the explanation of the gospel and its theology. The precondition for the disciples' mission was Jesus' departure, his death, his resurrection. And as we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus' departure and death and resurrection were also necessary, and they were a necessary precondition for the coming and the giving of the Holy Spirit, who was going to give the power of gospel witness. Look at chapter 15, verse 26 for a minute. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. There's the essence of the gospel, the living, resurrected Savior. You can go on over to chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I will go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. What's he saying there? I won't be here, but you will. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I've done, which is what? We'll see it in a minute. To represent God the Father to a lost and dying world, and God the Father actually turns that and says, no, I'm going to put attention on my son and the saving gospel he brought. There is no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. Listen, there is no greater work possible possible in the history of mankind than the raising of the spiritual dead to life through believing the gospel. There's nothing greater, not walking on water, not raising the physical dead. Nothing is greater than settling a person's eternity. God, God's given us that task and that privilege and that power And we can do it. This is almost hard to say. We can do it and spread the gospel in greater ways than Jesus did. Say, so how does that work out? Well, let's go back a little bit first. If you go back, we won't take the time to study, but in John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus affirmed that the works he did were those of the Father. The Father had showed him, and he said... He will show him greater works than these to give you cause for marvel. Now, was Jesus, when he said this uh, uh, back at, um, at Bethsaida, was he really saying, you're going to be able to um, uh, uh, feed a lot of people with your lunch? What are the greater works he said even back then that we and they, the disciples, would do? Well, his promise actually did come true because during the first few months after his death and resurrection, more men and women became followers through their witness than had done so in the entire ministry of Jesus himself. What happens in Acts chapter 2? 3,000 people were converted in a moment. We never saw that during Jesus' life. The greater works that he spoke of would still be his own work accomplished through the disciples, through us, because the Holy Spirit would be the one who would help us. But I know what you might be saying. You might be saying, now hang on. If he's giving us these works to do, yet God is the one who's the author of salvation, I mean, are we really doing greater works than him? And the answer is, well, no. We are no more doing God's work instead of him when we convert a soul through our witness then the disciples did a physical miracle without him when they did their own physical healing. It was still God. It was still God's power. The next section, by the way, beginning in verse 16 and following, are all about the Holy Spirit who is going to come in a permanent abiding residence with the believer to accomplish his work and his mission, primarily through the gospel witness. Yes, there were physical miracles the apostles did in the book of Acts, and that's a great illustration. God still did them through him. Think of what this informs us, by the way, regarding God's value system. Just remarkable, God's value system versus ours. I mean, if I, if I could see a withered hand go from deformation 
to perfect use, that'd be a pretty valuable thing for me to see. If I could see, sitting in that boat with the disciples, Jesus walking on the water in a storm, that would be pretty amazing. If I could see Jesus in the boat with another storm, so confident in his own walk with God, he just slept. They had to wake him up, and he calms the seas. If I could see that, I would be pretty impressed. You know what God says? Physical miracles? No big deal. His value system says greater than that is salvation. Why would God say that? Why would God see that as a a greater value? Because God thinks in terms of eternity. Let me think about it. You see someone walk on the water, you go away, that experience is gone. Even if someone's raised from the dead, they all die again. God's thinking eternal. Greater works are those works which last forever. Jesus just referred to his works, by the way, as a reference point at the end of verse 11. Here he goes beyond the power of those works to the power of the gospel itself. Now, I have to do this. Before we leave this topic of Jesus' miracles, this is an intriguing subject and topic just to to read through. I'm I'm, I'm going through uh, my Bible reading, and I'm uh, uh, in the middle of Mark right now in my New Testament reading, and I, I keep seeing over and over this strange phrase, Jesus heals these people. Jesus causes deformed limbs to become whole. Jesus heals demoniacs. He raises the dead. And you know what he says after that? Don't tell anybody. And I just want to say, really, Jesus? I mean, how can you, as a father whose child has died, who Jesus rose from the, raised from the dead... Not tell your neighbor that. He knew full well that they would tell others what had happened. But why in the world would Jesus say, I know you saw what you saw. I know you experienced what you experienced. But please don't tell anyone. Why? He answers that question in Mark chapter 9. One of the greatest miracles the disciples saw was that uh, they went up, uh, Peter, James, and John went up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He literally peels back his flesh. He shows them the glory that they could receive without being incinerated. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Mark chapter 9, verse 9 says this. Very interesting. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Now, footnote, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that would be a pretty worthy thing for people to know about Jesus? A pretty good proof that he was God in the flesh? Wouldn't you think Jesus would want that spread around? Why would he tell them, don't tell anyone? We find the answer to that question and all of the questions that people had about why they shouldn't tell what Jesus had done in this last phrase. He says, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. See, that's what puts this thing in such amazing context. Jesus is saying, if you, if you go tell people all of this right now, they're going to be confused. They're going to think that I'm here to feed people and heal people. Does any wonder why they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah and the King? Free food and free health? I would vote for him. 
Jesus says, that's not the gospel. If all people know is the physical deliverance and healing I can give them, they're going to be misled. After, though, after I have rose from the dead, tell them everything. Because then they'll put the whole package together and see the gospel truth that Jesus died for sins, proved it by by rising from the dead. Only Jesus' miracles were an incomplete good news gospel. That was only good news for the physical. Jesus says, no, no, there's greater work to be done, the conversion of the soul. I'm going to leave that to you, and people need to know about that after I'm done. The gospel, the good news, was not that Jesus could heal. It was not that he could feed. It was not that he could control nature. The gospel was that he could save sinners. That was the good and the better work that he gave the apostles. And we have that bloody baton that they gave to us. So faith is God-centered because the result is we represent God. When we're called to give a witness, we're representing God. Secondly, the request of faith is to glorify God. The result of faith is to represent God. The request of faith is to, rep- is to glorify God. Let me say that again. The result of faith is to represent God. The request of faith is to glorify God. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Here's another couple of verses that could be easily misinterpreted and misapplied without context and deeper study. The question is, is what the word whatever means. Whatever you ask in my name, does that mean money? Does that mean health? Does that mean the health of others? Does that mean prosperity? Does that mean success? And the answer is no, it doesn't mean any of those things. I have even been at prayer meetings where people would quote this and say, Lord, we know you've said whatever we ask, you will grant. It's not exactly what's going on here. Look right at the center of the verse. What's the the purpose of this? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. God doesn't give us everything we request. Have you figured that out in life? Have you prayed enough things to realize that sometimes his answer is no, sometimes his answer is wait, still waiting on a few things? God loves us way too much to give us something that would not serve us for eternity, and he loves us equally as much to not refrain from giving us from what is good for us in eternity. You have to note the qualifier here. Whatever you ask in my name... That means the request must be in harmony with whatever Jesus has revealed about himself. His name has to do with who he is. Jesus' name is all the totality of of what he did, who he is, what he continues to do. That's his reputation. The request has to be made in harmony with whatever Jesus has revealed about himself. The point here is that a believer living in God's intention for their lives, another way to say that is living in God's will will want what Christ wants and not want what Christ does not want. Sometimes I wonder if God just sighs in in disappointment with the, the shallowness of our 
prayers. I know he messed with me. I think of how much of my prayers have to do with the fact that if he answered them, it would just only affect this temporal life instead of eternity. Now, footnote. Paul does say, bring every anxiety I have to him. Everything. You can bring everything by prayer and supplication to God. You have to have thanksgiving, and he'll hear your supplication. He wants to hear about everything that's on our hearts. The point is, the main thing that's on our heart ought to be that which is in keeping with his will. This conversion of souls, the maturity of saints, our impact on them through the power of the Holy Spirit in giving the gospel and in nurturing people in the gospel. That's why, by the way, verse 15 follows these, these verses. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's connected. If you do what I do, you'll want what I want and see what I see about what's valuable in a human life, which is salvation and maturity in Christ. Look a little closer at the details of this promise, by the way. The purpose for which Jesus answers this request is that the Father would be glorified. There are theological dimensions to the Lord's answer, so there has to be theological dimensions to our requests. It's all about glorifying God by people seeing the Son. That's the point. Even the Holy Spirit will find out in a few weeks. His entire ministry is look at the sun, look at the sun, look at the sun. If I can just be so, so honest with you for a second. Um, I wrote a book last year about the centrality of Christ in our faith. And uh, there's a guy who's basically uh, at every point he can, he's got this website, and he takes me on because he thinks that I am, I am making an accent in the Trinity that the Bible doesn't make. That I'm ignoring God the Father, I'm ignoring the Holy Spirit because I say that everything's about Jesus. And I, I, I haven't responded to him. I, I don't want to dignify his criticism. But I can tell you this. Isn't it interesting that in Colossians 1.18, Jesus Christ is to have first place in everything? Isn't it interesting that the Father, every time he speaks about Christ, says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, look to him, I'm well pleased in him? Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit says... I'm here to point the way to the Son. You say, well, is the Son more important? No, he's subordinate to the Father's will. Is the Father more important? No, he points to the Son. Is the Holy Spirit more important? No, he points to the Son to glorify the Father. It's all wed together. But the focus of the New Testament theology, the New Testament theological course that begins in the book of Romans and goes throughout the rest of the New Testament is on Christ. And if you look at Christ rightly, you will see and glorify the Father, and you will love and cherish and appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's not a competition. They all come together. Also, the specific avenue of glorifying the Father is here in the Son. That's what it says. In other words, our request must be, must be Christocentric, about Christ, resolving and revolving around Christ. In other words, they should be highlighting Jesus when we're asking whatever we want to of, of, of the Father. Notice also, too, this is it's remarkable. This is a comprehensive statement. This is really good news and really good motivation for ministry. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, see that whatever and that anything? It's pretty comprehensive. Real, genuine faith desires to bring glory to the Father by showing the greatness of Jesus in the gospel. 
Nothing glorifies the Father more than John 3.16, right? What did he do? He gave his only begotten Son. And back to our outline. Real, genuine faith desires to bring glory to the Father by showing the greatness of Jesus in the gospel. These three verses indicate that true faith results in representing God. Jesus is going away. He leaves the representation of God the Father in the hands of the disciples and us. And the way we represent God the Father is explaining God the Son. Why? We just saw it last week. Because the Father and the Son are one. We're not talking about two different gods. We're talking about the same God. The consequence of this kind of witness is the conversion of sinners, the salvation of souls, which is a greater physical healing, greater rather than any physical healing that could have happened during this lifetime. And again, we're faced with the purpose of our evangelism, the focus of our evangelism, the method of our evangelism. When you trace the representations of the gospel throughout Scripture, you're going to discover that they all have the same accent. Jesus the man, the God-man. The New Testament actually knows nothing of gospel offers through good deeds. The gospel stresses Jesus, not noble feelings. If you go back to the day of Pentecost, the first Christian sermon ever preached by Peter, he said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. On the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the first Christian sermon ever preached was filled with Christology. It was, and understand what I mean by this, it was about the person of salvation, not the plan of salvation. It was about his sovereign power, his miraculous abilities, his substitutionary death, his resurrection glory. It was about Christ. The rest of the book of Acts. Read every sermon preached in the book of Acts. Every one of them are all and only about the person of Christ. I love uh, Acts chapter 8. When Philip approached uh, the chariot, the Ethiopian had one simple request. Please tell me of whom the prophet says. He was reading Isaiah, as you know. And I love Philip... Then opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to this pilgrim. Christ is the focus of the New Testament. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with asking, do we know enough to represent our Savior? Do we know enough about him to do the greater work of seeing a soul converted by being used by him so that we're filling our mind with gospel truth? And it's not just conversion, it's also the growth of believers, which is supernatural and a supernatural work too. It's discipleship. To disciple a person to come into greater understanding of Christ is a supernatural work. People aren't interested in Christ unless God has done something supernatural 
in their heart. So, do we watch every conversation to see if we can turn that conversation back to the centrality of God becoming a man who died on a cross for the sins, the punishment for the sins of those who believed in him and proved who he was and what he did by being dead for three days and God raising him from the dead, pulling him back to heaven and giving us the baton of ministry. Do we really understand how great a work that is? And as we marvel at Jesus' indescribable power in the New Testament record of miracles, we're able to say, the miracle of seeing someone come to Christ is even greater than that. Could be that you are on the other side of that miracle, though. I'm very well aware that we have large group of people who come on Sunday mornings to church, and I'm also aware that we could have people in the hearing of my voice right now who, who know something about God, something about the church, something about Jesus, but you haven't given your life to him. You haven't submitted your life to who he is, Lord and sovereign. You haven't really grasped the fact that he died instead of you so that you could give you his righteousness instead of your own. Well, if that's the case, you have come to the right church on the right day. Um, in a minute, I'm going to dismiss this, and some of our elders will be up here to my left, ready and willing to talk to you. We would love to describe to you what it means to know Christ, to know God, to have peace, to be forgiven for your sins, to put your head on your pillow tonight with no anxiety because if you died before you woke, Jesus would take you because of faith. I want to invite you to come up and find one of us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. For those of us who know Christ, just smile in your heart. Wonder in your imagination and say, wow, Jesus has called me to do a greater work in the preaching of the gospel than he did. That's nothing short of absolutely, overwhelmingly amazing. Let's pray together. Father, I, uh, I just hear what your son said in this passage. It's, it's remarkable. We can ask him for anything regarding our ministry, and he'll answer it. Anything to glorify him, he will answer it. Anything that brings you glory through him, and he is ready to come to our aid. We know that part of that that prayer was actually answered by him himself when he gave us the Holy Spirit, which we'll study in a few weeks. We need fresh awarenesses. We need our perspective changed. Change our value system, Father, to yours, which sees the conversion of a soul as a greater work than any physical miracle that can be imagined. Change our value system. Make us aware of who you are and what you do. Make us aware of the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us motivation and power in our discussions with others about the gospel. Make us bold because we believe in the resurrection. You predicated all this instruction, Lord Jesus, on the fact that this was going to be true because you were going away. We want to be your representatives. 
We want to take the blows for you because you took the cross for us. But we need power because we're men and women of weak faith and spiritual knees that just clang together in fear and trepidation. Give us boldness. Make us knowledgeable about your truth. Cause us to show the world the greatness of you in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.